after the isolating and disorienting experience of the last 15 months, you may start to feel like your social skills have gotten a little rusty. You may feel like you're out of practice when it comes to basic communication and especially conflict resolution. As many COVID-era restrictions are lifted, many of us find that we're still highly anxious, impatient, easily angered, and irritated. We may not be able to express ourselves in the most constructive of ways, and we don't even know how to greet one another anymore. We're all socially awkward now. Just the other day, I was walking through Central Park, and I saw one of those trees that is carrying a sign. Have you seen these signs that have been wrapped around some of the trees in the Central Park that say, it's okay to hug me? Well, I feel the same way. It's okay to hug me too. But we're all trying to figure out how to be human again. And that got me thinking because in many ways, that's what the Bible is all about. Jesus not only shows us what a truly human life looks like, but he lived, died, and rose again in order to make us fully human, to make us the people that we have been called to be. The whole reason why Jesus came was to renew God's image in us so that we might reach our full potential in God's eyes. And so today I'd like to go a little bit deeper and explore, well, how Jesus transforms us into our truest selves. And that means I need you to do something for me. I need you to put your thinking caps on. I need you to embrace your inner theologian because this is one of the most important and yet most often misunderstood aspects of the Christian life. What I'd like to try to tackle today is the topic of sanctification. And let me tell you why this is so critical. Let me use an analogy. Have you ever met someone who seemed perhaps a little emotionally stunted? Perhaps uh, they had matured in developmentally appropriate ways up until a certain point, but then they, they stopped. And as a result of that, they are very touchy, when it comes to criticism, hypersensitive about the complaints of others. They overreact to negative situations. Perhaps it takes them longer to recover. And they're very harsh towards the mistakes of others. They fail to make good choices for their own life and seem to be incapable of taking responsibility. Now, do you get what I'm talking about? It's, it's one thing if a toddler drops down on the floor kicking and screaming because they don't get what they want, but it's another if a grown person does that. That's awkward. Well, that's just an analogy, but here's my concern. If you don't get sanctification, then you're never going to grow up as a Christian. And my fear is that there's too many Christians walking around who are, in a sense, spiritually stunted. They've matured up to a certain point, but then they have stopped. And it's awkward, and it's not healthy for any of us. So I'd like us to take a closer look at sanctification today by considering what it is and how it works with a specific focus on Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And here the Apostle Paul simply writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is God's word. It is trustworthy and true, and it's given to us in love. Well, first off, what is sanctification? Well, you can hear the Latin root sanctus behind this word. And the word sanctus simply means holy. 
So sanctification is the process of being made holy, but therein lies the problem. Because most people would say, well, who wants to be holy? I don't want to be holy. I want to be happy. I don't want to be restricted. I don't want to be dull and uptight. I want to let loose and have fun. Now, it's understandable if you feel that way, but I think that feeling is the result of the wrong idea when it comes to what it means to be holy. You see, holiness connotes this idea of being detached, removed, humorless, reserved, unapproachable. We assume that in order to be holy, we have to cut ourselves off from other people. We, we have to do everything we can to avoid being tainted by anyone or anything that is broken. But that can't be right because Jesus is the holiest person who ever lived. He defines holiness. He sets the standard, and Jesus was none of these things. He wasn't distant, removed, or unapproachable. No, he was warm and engaged, and he pursued people, even in the messiness of their lives, and he loved them. He lived an utterly holy life, and his life was absolutely beautiful. So we must have the wrong conception of holiness because holiness as Jesus models for us is the kind of life that we were made for, the kind of life that we should aspire to, the kind of life that we should long for. And we'll never become the people that God created us to be unless and until we make being like Jesus the central passion of our lives. So let me see if I can change the way we think when we hear that term, holiness. Well, probably the most common definition of holy is set apart. People will say, well, what does holy mean? It means to be set apart. And that's right. There's a lot of truth to that. But that is actually what introduces this idea of being separate, removed, distant. And of course, it's true that God is separate from human beings. He is separate from our sin. But when we think of holiness purely in terms of separation, the pastor theologian Sinclair Ferguson suggests we're, we're we're approaching the question from the wrong place and we're putting the emphasis on the wrong spot. Because you see, before human beings ever existed, before sin ever entered into the world, God was, is, and will ever be holy. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has always been holy before there was anything to be separate from. So what does it mean for the triune God to be holy? This is what the seraphim around God's throne in Isaiah chapter 6 cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. So what does it mean for God in his own inmost being to be holy before there is anything to be separate from? Well, Sinclair Ferguson writes, when we say that the triune God is holy, we mean the perfectly pure devotion of each of these three persons to the other two absolute, permanent, exclusive, pure, irreversible, and fully expressed devotion. It's not something mechanical or formal or legal or even performance-based. It is personal. In a sense, holiness is a way of describing love. To say that God is love and that God is holy is ultimately to point to the same reality. Holiness is the intensity of love that flows within the very being of God, among and between each of the three persons of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if this is what holiness means in God, then in us, 
it must also be a corresponding, deeply personal, intense, loving devotion to him. A belonging to him that is irreversible, unconditional, without any reserve on our part. Simply put, it means being entirely his. So that all we do and possess are his. We come to think all of our thoughts and build our lives on this foundation. To be holy. To be sanctified. Therefore, to be a saint is in simple terms to be devoted to God. To, to be holy simply means to be devoted to God. So the next time you're in a Bible study and somebody says, well, to be holy means to be set apart, you can say, yes, yes, that's true. But the essence of holiness is not separation, it is devotion. God calls us to be holy because he has devoted himself to us. We are the objects of his holy love. And therefore, what separates us, what sets us apart, what makes us distinct is that we love him in return with a personal, intense, passionate devotion. And you see, unless you see that, holiness will always seem to you unnecessary or perhaps unattainable, leading to feelings of discouragement, resignation, perhaps even cynicism. Well, I, I've tried to change. I've tried to be different. I've tried to be holy, and it didn't work. Or maybe it, it's just for some people, and I'm, I'm not one of them. But no, this is what God calls all of us to. This is not some impossible dream, some idealistic fantasy, but God's desire is to make us holy because he has devoted himself to us. This is not some oppressive burden no, this is intended to be an incredible gift. This is what we are made for. This is what it means for us to be fully human. To be holy doesn't mean that we become strange or hyper-spiritual. To be holy simply means to live a life of love. Do you see that? Do you see the connection between holiness and love? To be holy simply means to live a life of love, love of God and love of others. In other words, to be holy means to become fully human, our truest selves, the people that we are created to be. The counselor, David Pelson, puts it like this, becoming more holy doesn't mean that you become ethereal, ghostly, and detached from the storms of life. It means that you're becoming a wiser human being. You're learning how to deal well with your money, your sexuality, your job. You're becoming a better friend and family member. When you talk, your words communicate more good sense, more gravitas, more joy, more reality. You're learning to pray honestly, bringing who God really is to the reality of human need. And you see, if that's true, well, then that is the thing that we should most cherish. Holiness should be the thing that we most long for in ourselves and in the ones we love the most. So if you're a parent... Holiness should be the thing that you long to see in your children more than athletic prowess or academic acumen or even personal happiness. If you're looking to get married or longing to be married, this is what you should be looking for in a potential life partner, holiness. And if you're a community group leader, this is what you're seeking to cultivate within your group to help people become more holy, more like Jesus, more fully human. All right, but if that is what sanctification is, it's the process of being made holy, devoted to God, then how does it work? 
Well, sanctification, like salvation itself, occurs in stages. We can think of it in terms of past, present, and future. So if you read through the New Testament, you'll see that in several places, there are verses that imply that sanctification has already happened. It's in the past. The very moment that you placed your faith in Jesus, you were sanctified. 1 Corinthians 6.11, it's already happened. God has devoted you to himself. And now you are a saint. And a saint simply means holy one. Now that doesn't mean that you are now sinless. A saint is not a sinless one, but rather a saint is one who has been devoted to God because God has devoted himself to you for his special purposes. And this call to be saints, this is not reserved for the select few. Well, that's, that's for some people, but not others. No, this is God's call for all Christians everywhere, in every time and in every place. And this is the most frequent way in which the authors of the New Testament greet the people to whom they're writing. They write these letters to the saints gathered in a particular church or city. The authors of the New Testament do not write to the sinners and the screw-ups who continually disappoint us and never get it right. No, the letters are written to the saints, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. See, this is what theologians call definitive or relational sanctification. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, God definitively devotes you to himself. He definitively sets you apart. You are now his. You belong to him. That's what makes you a saint. And this is a status that no one, no thing can ever change. It's fixed. It's yours forever. So you are sanctified in the past, but the New Testament also speaks about sanctification as an ongoing process in the present. And that's the way in which we most often talk about it. You are being sanctified. You are progressively being transformed into the image of Jesus. And that's what theologians mean by progressive sanctification. So there's definitive sanctification in the past and progressive sanctification in the present. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, two things happen. Number one, God justifies you. Despite your sin and your guilt, God declares you to be innocent and righteous. This is a, a verdict that falls on you from the outside. God declares you innocent and righteous. He acquits you. He declares you not guilty. And it's not because of who you are or what you've done or even because of what God has done or will do in you. But it's solely on the basis of what Jesus has already done for you. So justification is this verdict that falls on you from the outside because of what Jesus has done. So the moment you put your faith in Jesus, God justifies you, but then secondly, he sanctifies you. He not only declares you righteous, he begins the process of making, making you actually righteous. And this is an ongoing process that will go throughout your life. The one takes place in an instant, the second is an ongoing process, but both, both, both are the result of God's grace in your life. They're not your own doing. By his sheer grace, God frees you from sinful patterns of thought and behavior and then forms within you Christ-like dispositions, affections, and virtues. God plants within you the fruit of the Spirit. Not the fruit of your own character, no, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. This is not your own doing. 
And this is critical because Hebrews 12 verse 14 says that without holiness, no one, no one will see the Lord. It's absolutely essential. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And that's why, thank God, the New Testament also speaks about sanctification in the future. This process is guaranteed to be completed. It will be perfected in you because it doesn't depend on you. It's not the result of your work, it's the result of God's work within you. And that's why Paul can say in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus will finish what he started in you. And 1 John chapter 3, 2, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him. We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. You see, that's the goal of the Christian life, to become like Jesus. And the key to understanding it all is union with Jesus. See, when you put your faith in Jesus, it unites you so intimately, so tightly, so personally to him that everything that is true of Jesus becomes true of you. That's the key to understanding Christianity. If you put your faith in Jesus, everything that is true of him becomes true of you. So if Jesus died on the cross in your place as your substitute for your sin and that was raised to a whole new life, then in a certain sense you could say you have died to that old way of life and you have already been raised to new life in him. And that's what Paul's talking about in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And you can see how he plays with the different tenses of sanctification. He starts out by saying, I have been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. If you've put your faith in Jesus, that's true of you as well. You have been crucified with Christ. You have died to your old self. You can't live that way any longer. That's not who you are anymore. It's just not true. You have changed. And then he says, in the present, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's happening right now. Christ is at work in you by the power of his Holy Spirit. He's dwelling within you, and that's what gives you the power to live differently. And the motivation for it all is love. This life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus devoted himself to you. He loved you. He gave himself. He died for you. And now in return, he calls you to love him. And you see, that's the key to it all. It just shows us that holiness is not something that we achieve for ourselves. No, it's something that we receive by grace through faith. When he calls us to be saints, He's not telling us to, to try to become something that we're not, but rather to be who we now are as a result of God's transformative power at work in our lives. This call to holiness is not some unachievable standard that we're asked to try to live up to, but rather this is a promise, a promise that we're called to live into. And this is what most people don't get right. Most people are so confused about sanctification and this process of being made holy because we think that we have to make ourselves holy. And if we are holy enough, well, then God will accept us. Jesus will love us. We think that holiness is the way to Christ. But Spurgeon said, no, we've got it all backwards. That's all wrong. 
Holiness is not the way to Christ. Rather, Christ is the way to holiness. If you have him, then he will make you holy. But this brings us to the trickiest part of it all. If sanctification is the work of God's grace in us, and if it's true that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, well then what is my role in this process? What am I supposed to do? And this is where people tend to fall into one of two opposite errors. There are some who would say, well, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And if that's true, well then, you better get cracking. You better do more. You better try harder. You better make yourself holy. You got to clean up your act because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You got to make yourself holy. But then there's others who say, but if this is God's work of grace in you, well then I don't have to do anything. I can sit back and relax and I can just wait for God to zap me and change me. And if he doesn't change me, well, then that's his fault. This is his work, not mine. But they're both wrong. Both of those errors are wrong. So what's the right way? Well, J.I. Packer, I think, put it best when he said that God's way of change is neither activism nor apathy. God's way of change is not self-reliant activism nor God-reliant passivity, but rather God-dependent effort. God-dependent effort. You see, you're not going to change. You're not going to become more like Jesus by just sitting there. Now, there is something you're supposed to do. You are supposed to exert yourself. There is effort that you are supposed to put forth, but the effort you put forth is the effort of depending on God more. It sounds a little counterintuitive, but that's the key. The effort you put forth is the effort of relying more and more on Jesus rather than yourself. Take a look at Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Here Paul says something rather curious. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now this struck me in a fresh way this week because this is an odd way of putting things. Paul speaking in the passive rather than the active voice. You would think that he would say, don't be conformed to this world, but change yourself. Transform your life. But that's not what he says. He says, be changed. Be transformed. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So how do we engage in an activity in which we are going to be transformed? rather than transforming ourselves. Well, again, Ferguson puts it like this. The explanation is that we are to allow this to take place in our lives by yielding to what God does through an instrument in his hands. In this case, the means by which life transformation takes place is the renewal of your mind. And the instrument that God uses is the word of the gospel. The truth of the gospel informs and illumines our thinking. It thus begins to permeate our mindset and influence our dispositions. This in turn recalibrates our affections to love what we have now come to understand and to bow our wills in a new desire for conformity with God's will. You see that? This is how we change. We allow ourselves to be transformed by yielding to the change that God wants to bring into our lives. We have to open ourselves up and allow God to transform and change us through the renewal of our minds. And God can use a variety of means to renew our minds, to renew our thinking. 
First and foremost, he uses his word, the reading and especially the preaching of his word, the prayers, sacraments, the wise counsel of other people, even challenging life circumstances. God uses all these means to renew our minds so that we might open ourselves up and yield to the transformation that God wants to bring by his grace through his Holy Spirit. But I understand that this sounds a little abstract, and that's part of the reason why we struggle so much to understand sanctification, to really grasp it and hold on to it and allow it to happen in our lives. So here again, the best way to explain things may be through a story. So let me tell you a story. In The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, C.S. Lewis introduces us to a rather unlikable character named Eustace, who is the cousin of the four main protagonists in the Narnia stories. Well, at one particular point, the Dawn Treader, a ship, makes landfall on an island after a storm. But Eustace, true to his character, slips away from the rest of the group because he doesn't want to have to work. He doesn't want to have to work to repair the ship and make it seaworthy again. But when he slinks off, he discovers a dragon's lair that's filled with treasure. He's never seen anything like this before, and it fills his heart with greed, and so he starts stuffing his pockets with diamonds. And he finds a gold bracelet, and he slips it on his wrist, but it's too big for his slender arms, so he slides it up above his elbow. And then he falls asleep on top of this hoard of treasure. And when he wakes up, he realizes that he has become a dragon himself. And Lewis explains, well, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart had caused Eustace to become a dragon himself. Now, at first, Eustace thinks this is a good thing because now I've got nothing to be frightened of. I'm a dragon. Everybody's going to be afraid of me. He literally has become a terror But then it occurs to him that he is now cut off from his friends. He's cut off from all of humanity. He can't communicate with them. He's a dragon. And he longs to to talk, to laugh, to share things with other people. And, And he begins to feel the appalling weight of loneliness. Oh, and he's desperate to change. Desperate to change now. But there's nothing that he can do. He's powerless to transform himself back into a boy. But then one night, he meets Aslan, the lion, who leads him to a large well. And it looks like a very large, round pool of crystal clear water with marble steps leading down to it. And Eustace thinks that if he could just get in that water and bathe, well, then it would ease the pain in his arm. Because now that he's become a dragon, (laughs) that bracelet is way too tight. It's pinching his flesh. It's filling him with agonizing pain. But he can't enter the pool because Aslan explains that he first has to undress. And it takes him a minute. This confuses him. But then he realizes what the lion is saying. And this is how he later explains it. He says, I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things. And snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course I thought. That's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself and, and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully. In a minute or two, I just just stepped out of it. And I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. And it was the most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the well for my bath. 
But just as I was going to put my feet in the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as before. So Eustace discovers that no matter how many layers of skin he pulls off, he's still a dragon. And then the lion says to him, well, you will have to let me do it. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay down flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling free of the stuff. Well, he, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And then he caught hold of me and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain in my arm had gone. And then I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. And after a bit, the lion took me out and he dressed me in new clothes. But you see, do you get it? As a result of our human rebellion and sin, we have lost something of our humanity. We have dragonish thoughts that we harbor in our hearts that distort our humanity and cause us to be less than what we're called to be. We are less than fully human, less than the people that God destined us to be, and we cannot fix ourselves. That's the point. And perhaps you know that from experience. You've, you've tried to make changes in your life, but you realize that they were superficial and they didn't last. It was like scratching scales, but it didn't get underneath the surface. You couldn't actually change your skin. And the only way that we can truly change is if we allow God to pierce us with his claws, right seemingly to the heart, and to rip out of us all that is not of him layer upon layer of patterns of thought and behavior that have distorted our humanity. Now, it doesn't happen all at once, and the process may be long and difficult and at times painful, but that is the only way to become human again. Lewis concludes this chapter by writing, it would be nice and fairly near true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But most of those I shall not recount. The cure had begun. And so it is for you too. If you open yourself up to Jesus' way of change, you will be different. But there will be lapses. There will be setbacks and disappointments. There will be failures. But we don't need to dwell on that. Because if you open yourself up to the change that Jesus brings, well, then the cure has begun. And God will finish what he has started in you. He will transform you into someone who is utterly devoted to God, to someone who is holy.
Let me pray for us. Father God, we acknowledge that holiness often does seem unattainable and impossible, a burden which weighs on our conscience. But help us to see that we cannot, and in fact, we're not even supposed to change ourselves. But rather, we are called to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. So renew our minds today through the truth of the gospel. Help us to open ourselves up to yield to you and to the changes that you long to bring to us so that we might become the people that you have destined us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.